From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Friday, September 21st. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Violent protests in Pakistan leave several people dead in the latest unrest over an anti-Islam video. Also today, one Israeli soldier is dead after an incursion by militants from across the border in Egypt. And later in our program, some unemployed workers in Italy going back to the land. They get work, but no pay. Most of our farmers don't have any money and they couldn't afford to pay somebody. And the idea is they teach you about organic farming and you help out in exchange for food and lodging. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. What was supposed to be a day of peace in Pakistan turned into a day of rage instead. In the country's main cities, thousands of people protested the anti-Islam video made in America that sparked unrest around the globe. The Pakistani government declared today a public holiday and urged people to demonstrate peacefully. But the protests turned violent, and several people were killed. Declan Walsh is the Pakistan bureau chief for the New York Times. Declan, can you tell us what happened where you are in Islamabad today? Well, there were some fairly uh, dramatic scenes close to the diplomatic enclave. That's a part of the city where most Western embassies and diplomatic missions are. We had scenes where several thousand protesters, many of them led by people from extremist religious groups, marched on that part of the city. They clashed violently with the police, clouds of tear gas in the air, and that went on for a good part of the afternoon. And why didn't it get as violent as it was in some other places? And I want you to take us to those other places uh, after you tell us what happened in Islamabad. Islamabad is a relatively small capital city. Karachi, on the other hand, has somewhere between 18 and 20 million people. There are a number of religious and some extremist groups that are very active there. And they certainly seem to have rallied very strongly during the day, particularly after Friday prayers ended in Karachi. Some of these marchers were carrying flags and banners that identified them as members of extremist groups. And they led a number of different protests. American diplomatic premises were very much a target for protesters. Uh, The Pakistani government made a very concerted effort to guard those premises. In many cases, there were several rings of security, usually created by dropping large shipping containers across the main roads to stop protesters getting there. And those shipping container barricades became the focus of clashes between the the police and the protesters. Declan, you said that the protests, uh, the most violent, which seemed to be anti-American in nature, there is a television ad that is right now airing on Pakistani TV featuring President Obama talking about America's tradition of religious tolerance. It features Secretary of State Hillary Clinton saying that Washington, and she hopes it is obvious, had nothing to do with the making of this anti-Islam video. Has that 
advertising campaign by the U.S. done anything at all? Has it had any impact? It's safe to say that it hasn't had the impact that the U.S. government might have wished. Uh, The U.S. has really been at pains here in Pakistan to try and distance itself from the controversial video that has stoked all of this trouble. The reality is that many of the people who are out in the streets protesting probably haven't even seen this video. Uh, YouTube has been banned here in Pakistan now for several days. So it's hard to imagine that most of the people who we see on these very dramatic television pictures have watched that video, but they've been told by their leaders that the United States has somehow been involved in promoting this hatred as they see it towards the Prophet Muhammad. And it does seem that no matter what American diplomats and government officials say, it doesn't seem to be able to blunt their anger and, and prevent them from heading onto the streets. Uh, Declan, just again for perspective, the Pakistanis who stayed home today did not go out on the streets. Is there a critical mass of them that's saying what's going on here and, and why the violence? Well, certainly during the day, as part of its efforts to control these protests, the government shut down mobile phone services across most of the country, or certainly in the large cities. What that meant is that certainly for those people who had access to computers and could afford it, they were left communicating on the Internet. So on social media services like Twitter or Facebook, for instance, I saw a lot of despair, really, frustration, anger and despair among ordinary Pakistanis, for want of a better word, who were sitting at home watching these scenes unfold on television and really feeling a sense about their own country that, if you like, this small and you know radical fringe of people was able to hold the rest of the country hostage effectively for an entire day. Those considerations are going to come up over the coming days when people are looking at the decision of the government to declare this as a what is officially termed as a day of declaration of love for the Prophet Muhammad. Thank you, Declan Walsh, Pakistan Bureau Chief for the New York Times. He spoke to us from Islamabad. While the world's attention was on Pakistan and other nations where there were protests, there was violence today along the border between Israel and Egypt. The Israeli military says that it thwarted an attempt by three armed militants to infiltrate the country. The militants crossed the border from Egypt and ambushed Israeli troops. One Israeli soldier was killed, and so were all three of the militants. There was Matthew Bell is in Jerusalem. Matthew, what else? Do we know about what transpired? According to the Israeli military, there were three gunmen that came across the border about halfway between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. It's a long desert border between Egypt's Sinai Desert and southern Israel. The men were heavily armed. They had uh, bulletproof vests, at least one uh, explosive suicide belt, according to the Israeli military. They said there was a shootout. An Israeli soldier was killed. Another Israeli soldier was wounded, and all three of the militants were killed. So just to be clear on this, there was someone who was wearing a suicide belt. Has that been confirmed, and and the belt was detonated? Has that part been confirmed too? According to the the reports I've seen, the the Israeli military is saying that at least one of them had, had an explosive belt and that it apparently went off during the shootout that lasted a while. Is there any indication of who these people were and who's responsible? No claims of responsibility yet, Lisa, but this is at least the fourth type of an incident like this in just over a year. Uh, back in, in June, there was an attack that killed one Israeli worker. Remember that Israel's building a border fence along this, this stretch of border for two reasons. One is security for, for things like this and also 
to keep migrants from Africa uh, from crossing over into Israel. A little over a year ago, the, the worst attack in Israel itself was when militants came across and actually killed eight Israelis. This is one thing that Israeli officials have been talking about for months now. Recently, I was at a talk with Ronnie Bar-On. He is the head of the Knesset Committee on Defense and Foreign Affairs. Here's an example of, of how the Israelis have been talking about this problem of security from across the border. It is clear that Egypt must fight terror within its border. Sinai has become a terrorist nation, a land of smugglers, terrorists, and human trafficking, posing a threat not only to Israel, but also Egypt itself. Lisa, that's a reference to the deadliest attack like this that happened about six weeks ago when militants attacked an Egyptian security base and they killed at least 16 police and security forces there. That prompted the Egyptian government to launch what many people see as an unprecedented crackdown on militancy in the Sinai. But by all accounts, this is a long-term effort, and it's not clear what's been accomplished just yet. Because we don't know who's responsible exactly right now, do we know what the motivation could have been? I mean, we're seeing widespread protests across Egypt and in many countries, of course, over an anti-Islam film trailer. Is what we're seeing in Sinai today at all connected possibly with the violence that we've seen elsewhere? That's hard to say too, Lisa. As I said, these attacks have happened before. This is a tense area on a good day here. The Israelis say that there are all kinds of extremists and militants and even Al-Qaeda type of radicals running around uh, the Sinai. The Egyptians have said that it's a problem and, and they've launched that crackdown there. The Egyptians have also complained and said that their hands are tied in some ways because of the Israel-Egypt treaty that limits the number of troops that they can deploy along the border in the Sinai. Egyptian officials have said they want to renegotiate parts of the treaty. The Israelis say, look, we're flexible. We'll let Egypt do what it needs to do, but we need to coordinate with Egypt. There's a new government in Egypt, and the relationship between Egypt and Israel is changing, and we just don't know exactly how it's all going to work out. Okay, speaking to us from Jerusalem about the attack that happened on the border of Egypt and Israel today, the world's Matthew Bell. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. In Egypt's capital, Cairo, there was a demonstration today near the French embassy. The protest was over the publication in France of cartoons that many Muslims find offensive. Cairo is almost synonymous with loud protests, such as the ones last year that brought an end to the Hosni Mubarak regime and many more protests since. But despite all that, life goes on in Cairo. And that life is pretty loud, too, especially on Cairo's congested roads, where drivers have turned their car horns into a form of speech. Julia Simon explains in this reporter's notebook. I lived in Cairo a little more than two years, and whenever I'd walk down the street and hear, I thought it meant, that is, I thought it was just a hunk. Turns out that hunk has a meaning, and apparently I wasn't looking where I was going. You see, means, uh, What's that mean? Open your eyes. So you say that if someone is uh-huh. is not looking, not paying attention? Yeah. Maybe something people uh, walking uh, crazy and uh, no, no looking. That's Hisham Amiri, a Cairo cabbie who has been driving the streets for two decades. He says that in Egypt, 
Honking is a language. Drivers use short honks and long honks to make words, like Morse code. And he says not just taxis use it. This language from all drivers. Hisham took me for a cab ride around Cairo for a little lesson. Buckle my seatbelt. Here, let's get ready. Okay, we're ready to go. Where? Uh, let's just drive. Okay. He began right away, and I quickly learned that many of the honks are for bad drivers, like this one. What's that? As name, I tell him, uh, you are no driver. It probably won't come as too much of a shock that a lot of the honks represent such descriptive swear words that I can't translate them on the air. But the honks aren't just for other drivers. They're for women that drivers see walking on the street. Like... I love you. I love you. I love you. Is it Arabic? It's too much. But while there are lots of honks directed towards women, Hisham says honking is a male language, which raises the problem. Maybe they hear it and just think it's a random honk. That's what I would have yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that, but little woman, they like this. No, 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 I gotta tell you. I don't know how many times in my life I've heard honks and I've never known what it meant. Many women do know they're getting honked at. It's just that the honk for, I love you, might sound the same as the honk for, Oh, beautiful woman, to an untrained ear. And many of my female Egyptian friends don't know any honks at all. Many of them don't drive, and many of those that do haven't gotten the chance to learn this language. But I am proud to say that I am now officially a student of honk. Like this, like this. Bahebak. <laughs> yeah? Okay, let me try it. Bahebak. Uh-huh, like, oh, I love you. Okay, so, so if I see a man I love, I'll go. I love you. Perfect. For the world, I'm Julia Simon. Cairo's Karahorn language is one of the many stories you can hear on The World in Words. Find our language podcast at theworld.org. You're listening to PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Cartoons and comics are not always fictional. Increasingly, they're used to tell real stories, serious stories. Stowaway is an example of that. Stowaway is a comic being released this week only online. Stowaway is the title. It's the story of an Ethiopian boy named Fanwell and his long and harrowing journey to the United States. It was written by reporter Tori Marlin and illustrated by comics artist Josh Newfeld. Fanwell, which is not his real name, is now 22 years old, but when Tory Marlin first met him at a children's detention center in Chicago, he was still a boy and not quite sure how old he was. Well, he thought he was 17. He was actually 16. He was one of the few English speakers there, and he just struck me as someone who was um, had gone through a lot, but really still had hope. He had uh, a lot going on in his life before he arrived at the detention center here in the United States. He started off in Ethiopia, which is where he's from. Can you give us an overview of his story and his journey? 
Yeah, um, he lived in a poor section of Addis Ababa with his mother. And when he was eight years old, his mother died. And he lived in a park for five years, a park that had a lot of street kids in it. And he met a tourist in the park who would come with an interpreter. He took a particular interest in Fanwell. So when he said, you know, I know you're suffering a lot. Would you like to come live with me? I have a lovely home. South Africa is a lovely country. You can go to school. Fanwell jumped at the chance. And he went to Johannesburg, South Africa. Briefly, what happened there? Very quickly, things turned sour. He, he discovered he was not allowed to go to school. The man who took him there, Bart is his name, told him that if he left, the police would arrest him because he was there illegally. How did he get out and where did he go next? The man died. His sister came to the house one day and told him that Bart had died and that he had to leave. He went to the Ethiopian restaurant, uh, the only place he knew in Johannesburg, and sought help there, and he found it in the form of a smuggling network. He found a smuggling network which brought him where? Uh, From Johannesburg to Brazil, Brazil to Honduras, Honduras to Guatemala, Guatemala to Mexico City, and then he crossed into the United States by way of the Rio Grande. Josh, I want to bring you in now. Um, you are a cartoonist and an illustrator. What makes a story like Fanwell's so ripe for what's called a comics art form? I mean, this is obviously when we think of comics or cartoons, we think of something that is funny, animated. It's not funny. And I wonder how you were able to portray it in your illustrations. Well, my particular rubric of the comics world is nonfiction and and journalistic comics, and so that's something I've been focusing on for the last uh, five, six, seven years. So this story was particularly compelling, not only because I've known Tori for 20 years and (laughs) follow her work very closely, but because his story is, is, um, you know, just has so much inherent action and drama um, to it that it really lended itself to the comics form. This form, again, the form in which you're telling Fenwell's story is what's called in the trade an enhanced nonfiction e-comic. Can you describe for our listeners just what that is? It's a normal comic, you know, that you read panel by panel, but you can also look at it page by page or you can read it panel by panel, book sort of blow up each one and it'll skim by. There's lots of embedded multimedia aspects. So, you know, at any certain point you can click on an icon and it will maybe tell you a little bit more about a scene and how Tori and I came to represent it. Or it'll show you a map of where Faneuil is at that moment in time. Or um, a little animation will come up and show you the way that he traveled by plane and by bus, etc., from one spot to another. And which, give us one of those enhanced parts that maybe presented something of a challenge for you. I mean, you didn't you didn't see Fanwell's mother in Ethiopia, but you have a, an image of his mother sick in bed. She eventually died, you know, telling him, wishing, basically wishing him well, hoping that his life is, is better. How did you come about an illustration like that? Well, that's true. I mean, that's the part that is tricky about doing comics like this and, and, you know, it being nonfiction because part of my job as the artist is to bring to visual reality things that we could never have seen and, and could only have been told to us by Faneuil. And even his descriptions are often sketchy or incomplete. So there's a lot of imagination that had to go in on both of our parts in certain places. So, you know, that's why this is sort of a melange of of journalism and art, I would say. But, you know, we never made up any dates. We never created characters that didn't exist to make the story work better, you know, on some other level. But there was a lot of sort of a process of imagination and deduction and a lot of visual research that went into creating a lot of these scenes. 
I wonder in terms of the editorial research, Tori, it, it seems like you talked to a number of people who were involved in Fenwell's journey to the United States. They are part of this trafficking network in places such as Brazil, where he was, Guatemala, Mexico. Did you speak to any of the traffickers directly as you reported no, actually this story? I didn't. I had no way to reach them. Uh, Fanwell didn't know names. He didn't really know much about where he was other than the name of the city. There was just no way, no way to reach them. So how could you and did you confirm the information that he told you about his history? Well, I, I did some research, um, you know, to find the route. The route is actually a pretty common route going th- from Johannesburg to Brazil. You know, he, he crossed the Rio in an inner tube. That's a pretty common way of crossing. There are documented pictures of that. He told me things that were verified through other people's experiences, but I couldn't know. I certainly couldn't talk to traffickers and verify his exact experience was exactly the way he said it. But it's his story, and I wanted it to be told, you know, everything to be filtered through his immediate experience. And this is also the story that he told to the immigration court and got his green card for. So I think this is the story of record. What's happening with Fanwell now, Tori? He's doing great. He just uh, moved from New York to Pennsylvania. He is working on an associate's degree in a business-related field. He is working uh, at the same job that he's had for many years. He, he works at a big box store and gets has been transferred at his request to several different cities. And... Uh, he has his green card. He's he's doing quite well. Thank you, uh, both of you, for telling us the story of Fanwell. Tori Marlin and Josh Newfeld. thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Tori Marlin is a reporter and editor based in Montreal. Josh Newfeld is an illustrator and cartoonist based in Brooklyn. He's currently a Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan. Their e-comic Stowaway comes from the online publisher The Atavist. We've got a selection of the story at theworld.org. To crack today's geo-quiz, you got to crack a few eggs. You can find eggs on the menu in most places around the world. There's egg drop soup, frittata, salted duck egg, eggs benedict, just to name a few. We want to know the name of the country that consumes the most eggs per capita. This is a place where statistically every man, woman, and child consumes about 350 eggs a year. As a hint, we have a local recipe for you. It is rabo de mestiza, which is a poached egg in a tomato and poblano raja sauce. The recipe is at theworld.org. We're going to chat with the author of the recipe in just a bit about how people in the country we want you to name today have been coping with an egg shortage lately. The answer is coming up a little later in the program. This is The World on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Feeding pigs may not be a resume builder, but some of Italy's unemployed have other reasons to volunteer down on the farm. And I would suggest this experience, you know, to all people that lose their job. All it's about is to enjoy nature. Especially if the farm is organic. That story coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. It's not just the Middle East where tensions are high these days. People in Portugal are angry as well, not about a profit, but about profits or lack thereof. We're talking money. The Portuguese unemployment rate is now 15.7 percent, and the government is slashing spending to reduce its deficit. Well, today, Portugal's prime minister said he feels the people's pain. He suggested the government might soften planned tax hikes. Journalist Barry Hatton lives in Lisbon, and he's the author of the book The Portuguese, released last year. He says there are a number of, number of issues driving the unrest. Well, the main one uh, that's really annoying everybody is that Social Security contributions that are taken out of your monthly salary, uh, they've gone up a heck of a lot for uh, workers. Uh, in fact, most workers will lose a, a month's pay next year. And in the meantime, the government is asking companies, employers, business leaders to pay less social security contributions. And they're hoping that the companies will use that extra money, kind of a windfall, if you like, to start hiring more people. Of course, people just say that they'll just use it just to you know, pay, you know, to improve their bottom line and, and pay higher dividends to their shareholders. Um, so, as I say, nobody's happy about it. Even the business leaders don't like it. The trade unions hate it. Opposition parties hate it, too. So the government's been pushed into a corner, and it's very likely they'll retreat on it. Who's been doing, generally, the demonstrating? I mean, who, who is out there? The last two major demonstrations we've had here have been organized just by the general public on Facebook. We had one last year, which is a huge one, organized by four unemployed uh, students or, or recent graduates. The one we had recently here uh, in September, as again, was organized on Facebook uh, by a group of intellectuals. Obviously, you have the trade unions and politicians, but you also have pensioners with their grandchildren, for example, because going to university here, going to college, no longer guarantees you a, a job. And even if you do get a job, it doesn't guarantee you a well-paying job. There are middle-aged people, middle-class people, who have taken the brunt of these austerity measures, in fact, who are in danger of losing their home, increasing amount asking for food aid from the food banks. So there's a sense of a, a broad outrage building across society. This is not just political, it's people standing up and expressing their anger. That's reporter Barry Hatton in Lisbon, Portugal. The well, Spanish are pretty angry at their government and at their banks, which are about to get a $130 billion bailout from the European Union. Many of the bank's bad loans are mortgages that won't be repaid anytime soon, and so evictions are on the rise. Today, the world's Jerry Hatton takes us to one neighborhood in Barcelona, reported to have the highest eviction rate in Spain. The neighborhood's name is Ciudad Meridiana, but people here have taken to calling it Eviction City. Basically, it's a cluster of dull apartment buildings on a hillside high above downtown. To give you an idea of the neighborhood, says resident and activist Filiberto Bravo, the city was going to use this land for a public cemetery, but it's too humid, so they said forget it. Then someone decided it might not be good enough for the dead, but we can use it for the living. The apartments here are small, most about 800 square feet, and cheap, on average about $60,000. But during Spain's construction boom of the last decade, prices went up five times. A Nigerian man named Abby Davids bought in 2006 when the market was high. If you're going to sign a mortgage, there's a lot of paper you need to sign. You know, on this paper, you'll be reading it very fast. You sign here, you sign here, you sign here with the passion that we want to get a house, you know, with a happiness sign. Well, we didn't know what you sign. The stupidness, you know, and we cannot cope, we cannot pay. 
David sits in his dark living room with his wife and two infant children. They're waiting to be evicted, literally. The judge, the banker, and the police are due any moment. If the Davids are forcibly removed, it will be just one of hundreds of evictions from Ciudad Meridiana this year. Several hundred more are pending. David says his initial mortgage was about $1,000 a month, but interest rates went up. We find out that the payment monthly is going higher and higher and higher. And you can imagine when you are working, you are receiving something like 800 euro, and you are asked to pay 1,300 euro. It's not possible. I went to the bank that I want to leave this house. I cannot afford to pay this money. The bank was telling me it's not possible. As Davidson family wait nervously inside, a crowd gathers out front. These are activists who've taken to physically stopping evictions by blocking the entryways into buildings. The activist Filiberto Bravo says anger is especially high in Ciudad Meridiana because the abuses here during the boom were high. He says foreigners like David's, unfamiliar with Spain's mortgage rules, were especially taken advantage of. In a neighborhood of 11,000 people, he says, we had at one point 11 real estate agencies. It was crazy. More and more people were piling in, and the banks and agencies sold to people who didn't have steady salaries. What makes evictions like these even more dramatic is that in Spain, you can't just hand over the keys and walk away. The debt follows you. If you die, it follows your children. As more and more people default, it's creating a big problem nationwide. This is the most egregious example of the fallout from Spain's housing boom, says local politician Santi Borruy. Borruy is also outside David's building as a sort of mediator, though he admits there's little he can do but watch. He says these evictions make no sense. The value of these apartments has fallen dramatically, he says, making them impossible for the banks to sell. These apartments end up empty, he says, for a few months, a year or more. We'd like to see them become subsidized housing, but it's complicated. The banks own these flats, so they're in private hands. Banks have come under even more fire from citizens' groups for what they describe as evicting people with one hand and collecting billions of dollars in rescue money with the other. Why not rescue the people directly, they say. Finance professor Carlos Vergara with Barcelona's ESA Business School says that sounds fair. But then you have again the problem where you rescue this family and not another family. In other words, figuring out how much and whom to save would be a nightmare. In the more immediate term, he suggests banks cancel the mortgages of those who can't pay, but rent them the same apartment for less. That way the bank has some income and fewer people are on the streets. Such discussions are underway, but it will likely be years before the entire banking sector accepts that sort of compromise. In the meantime, back at Abby David's apartment block, the crowd is growing tense. Then a call comes in to Borruy, the local politician. The eviction has been postponed, he yells, to applause. Apparently, the bank got word of the protest. But the Davids have only been given an extra two weeks, two weeks to find another place to live or to make a stand again. For the world, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Spain has got one of the highest jobless rates in the EU. Italy isn't far behind. Many unemployed workers there are looking to the countryside for something to do. Christopher Livesay has that story from northern Italy. It's a sunny day at the Dulcamara Cooperative Farm in Emilia-Romagna. The air is thick with the scent of ripening almonds. In an open meadow with soccer goals at each end, farmers are busy feeding sheep, chickens 
and three boars. Their bellies nearly drag on the ground as they run towards a fresh helping of slop. You couldn't pay some people to do this dirty job. In fact, these six workers aren't paid at all. They're volunteers with Woof, or Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. It's a nonprofit network that's spread to more than 50 countries. It started about 40 years ago. Bridget Matthews is the Woof coordinator for Italy. The idea of it is to help organic farmers. Organic farming is really labor-intensive. Most of our farmers don't have any money, and they couldn't afford to pay somebody. And the idea is they teach you about organic farming, and you help out in exchange for food and lodging. Woof has given a boost to Italy's three billion euro organic food industry, which has tripled in size in the past decade. And the euro crisis is also fueling Woof's growth. Since 2008, participation in Italy has nearly doubled, from 2,200 to 4,300 volunteers. Growing numbers of people have left their homes and taken up migrant farming because they have nowhere else to go. Giuseppina, who doesn't want me to use her last name, lost her job three years ago as a parking garage manager in Piedmont. She's been woofing full time as a farm cook ever since. At 52, she says she doesn't have many other options. People of my age—it's you know a group of people that have difficulties in finding jobs in Italy, and especially women. There's less job markets for women. The job market's not good for young people either. Aaron Martin is 25. He's from Florence. He's planting broccoli at the farm. He couldn't find a job. Despite earning an economics degree in February, this degree is useless. Then you have to do master. Then you have to do I don't know what. Then they ask you five years experience before you can work. In Italy, it's like this. Italy's jobless rate is 10.7 percent, according to the EU. For people under 25, it's more like 35 percent. You cannot solve the problem you have created in 40 years just in 10 months. Michel Martone is Italy's deputy labor minister. Since taking power a year ago, his government has introduced sweeping reform measures to save the economy from collapse. It's introduced things like tax breaks for companies that hire young people. So we have to do more. We can do more. It will be a long way. We have to say the truth that the solution is not going to be easy, but there will be a solution, and we are on the right way to achieve it. In the meantime, Aaron and Giuseppina are toughing it out on farms, planting broccoli. Feeding sheep and pouring pig slop, but it's not such a hardship. They both say they've learned to love it, and they don't plan to give up this Arcadian way of life anytime soon. Giuseppina says someday she'd like to run her own small farm. I'm very happy, and I would suggest this experience, you know, to all people that lose their job. All it's about is is to enjoy nature. That's all. Enjoy nature. Touches, smelling, feelings, cooking it. In other words, she's found something more meaningful than a paycheck, at least for the moment. For the world, I'm Christopher Livesey in Emilia Romagna, Italy. You can see pictures of the co-op farm in northern Italy. We've got them at theworld.org. Time now to check back on our geo quiz today. We asked you this: When it comes to eating eggs, which country is the biggest consumer? The answer is Mexico. A national egg shortage there is causing some distress now. Patricia Hinich is a chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute in Washington. She says that eggs are always on the Mexican table. 
Mexicans are really imaginative when it comes to basic staples and eggs are one of the, I would say, five basic staples in a person's diet. Yeah, eggs plus what? Um, beans? Tortillas. Tortillas. Chile, any form of chile, you know, in a salsa, in a pickle, in a relish, even just taking a bite. And how about eggs themselves? You're a chef. What are the ways that you serve eggs? You know, from soup to dessert. I can tell you, you know, the garlic soup, sopa de ajo or egg soup, sopa de huevo, all sorts of, you know, croquettes, meatballs, because the egg, the beauty of the egg is not only that it is such a cheap and delicious protein, but as you know, we also use it to give volume to dishes. You know what you can do with egg whites from floating islands to making the most beautiful batters to deep chile rellenos. So, we use eggs on a daily basis. Here's the problem. There is, of course, an enormous gap right now in terms of the supply of eggs because of the bird flu that struck hens in Mexico over this past summertime. So there were 11 million birds that had to be killed. What now are Mexicans doing to try to fill that gap? What I've been reading and listening to, Lisa, is that the government is taking all sorts of measures. So they sacrificed those 11 million um, hands, and then they vaccinated about 88 million. And then they've imported from the U.S. what I last heard was 400 tons of eggs. And so it, there still is not enough. And people are very upset about the prices. There is a huge gap. And so Mexicans are being very inventive. Now you see people in restaurants. I just spoke with my sister. She runs a Mexican French restaurant in Mexico City. And she was telling me, Patty, for breakfast, every morning we offer anywhere from 12 to 15 egg options. Because, you know, they're so delicious in cazuela, rancheros, rabo de mestiza, all sorts of eggs. So they're trying to do things with vegetables, you know, calabacitas, instead of huevos rancheros, calabacitas rancheras, and offer that as a substitute. The eggs, though, according to some Mexicans, the eggs that are coming in from the United States don't quite cut the mustard. Uh, how come? <laughs> and you and you have the perfect term because they're not as yellow looking as they should be. In Mexico, the yolks have a strong, a deep, strong yellow color, and the eggs that are coming from the U.S. look much paler. And the flavor is different. And there's another thing, Lisa. In Mexico, people really pride themselves in the fact that we produce enough eggs that we need. So we've been self-reliant in producing eggs. And so now the fact of having to get eggs from other places hurts the pride a little, I guess. It's just, you think you're going to get the same thing, but it is a different flavor, a different texture, a different consistency. Can people afford these eggs coming in from parts of Central America no, or from the U.S.? they cannot, Lisa. They can't because the eggs are part of the basic basket that people uh, that are on a minimum wage have always been able to get. And now with, you know, their wages, they're not being able to afford eggs. So it is a big deal. Patty Yinich is a chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute in Washington. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Lisa. This is PRI.
PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The Obama administration famously came into office aiming to push the reset button on relations with Russia. Well, that may seem like a lifetime ago. Tensions between Washington and Moscow have been high lately, and this week the relationship took another hit. The Russian government ordered the U.S. Agency for International Development to wrap up its operations in the country. USAID staff have until October 1st to do that. The U.S. government has been active in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. It's focused on development projects, which include health and democracy-building projects. But Russia accuses the U.S. of abusing such programs to undermine the Russian government. From Moscow, Matthew Brunwasser reports. The Russian government announced the end of U.S. aid activities in a blunt statement on Tuesday. The reverberations continue. The Russian foreign ministry held a follow-up press conference yesterday to explain. Spokesman Alexander Lukashevich said that U.S. aid-funded NGOs, or non-governmental organizations, had crossed certain red lines. Any civil society which respects itself at some point starts to understand that it's not possible to live only on the grants which come from abroad. There are other sources of financing, including inner sources, of course, which help NGOs to exist and solve tasks. I don't see anything dramatic here. NGOs are often the favored means of Western governments to help develop transitional countries, such as those in Eastern Europe. They work in areas like democracy building, environmental protection, and public health. Often staffed by educated young people, Western policymakers say they allow local people to build local institutions. Commentator Konstantin von Eggert says that in Russia, the government views them as dangerous because they are beyond state control. Putin sees Western-funded NGOs as direct agents of regime change in Russia. These entities, of course, do not have any other uh, sources of uh, financing because uh, Russian businesses and Russian charitable foundations will never give them money because just by monitoring elections they play against the Putin regime. Uh, So they have to rely on Western funding. In its statement on Tuesday, the Russian foreign ministry accused the U.S. government of exerting influence through grants on Russian politics and elections. One Russian NGO frequently accused of furthering foreign interests is Golos, Russian for voice. It has a $3 million USAID project to help monitor elections. Project manager Ksenia Sokolova says that journalists and political parties will still be free to monitor elections. But Golos will not be able to help train and coordinate in the same way. Golos was like the main trainer, the, man, the, the main organization which provided expertise, knowledge, materials, trainers to educate observers. It's just another step to close NGOs who are trying to tell the truth. Almost all of the funding came from USAID, she says, funding which is impossible to find from Russian sources. Sokolova also rejects accusations by the Russian government that Golos and other NGOs are following orders from foreign governments. The process of financing starts from our application. We say to them, guys, we Russian people want to do something good for Russian people, and we don't have Russian money, 
Can you please support some democratic initiative in Russia? Can you give us money? Other NGOs which have nothing to do with democratic institutions will also close up. USAID funds 100% of the budget of the Russian Healthcare Foundation. Its $10 million budget goes to help improve tuberculosis treatments. Director Dmitry Golayev is grim about the future after October 1st. Nothing will happen. The project will be closed. Russia has a high rate of TB. Goliath's NGO is trying to improve the efficiency of treatment, which will help slow the spread of new cases. He says that Russia also spends the most money in the world on TB treatment per patient without results. The efficiency is very poor. That's why our task to prepare a scheme, to prepare technology, to prepare a prog- program, less cost, more efficient. Critics charge the Russian government with deepening the country's isolation and turning back the development of its democratic institutions. But the government may score points by kicking out Western projects, on the grounds that Russia can do the job just fine on its own. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Moscow. And finally today, we want to showcase two musical efforts to help people displaced by violence in northern Mali. It's estimated that more than 200,000 people have been forced to flee the region since militants and hardline Islamists staged an uprising there. Tomorrow in New York, there's going to be a concert to benefit some of those who fled. It's dubbed Musicians for Mali. One of the organizers is Banning Air. He's senior editor at Afropop.org. He says the unrest in northern Mali is affecting the Malian community in New York. We wanted to do something, so we're going to really show the strength of this community on stage and try to raise some money for this great organizations that we've, we've targeted to who are helping refugees and specifically helping the families of musicians who have been displaced by this crisis in the north of Mali. Banning Air personally knows one musician whose family has been displaced. She is a singer from Timbuktu named Kyra Arby. The last time I saw her a couple of months ago here in New York, she she was in a real state of despair, you know. Um she, she her you know people in her family and in her band were being forced to flee their homes. She was talking about homes being invaded and people being attacked. And the last we heard, she actually didn't make her last appearance in New York because she was staying behind in Bamako to deal with helping getting family members out of Timbuktu. And the last we heard, she was herself heading back there. So we're quite concerned about her. That's a dangerous, gutsy move, but she is a gutsy lady. So if anyone can can pull it off, I would say Hira Arby can. There are many other Malian musicians affected by the unrest in their country. The band Tadalot is from a town in northern Mali that was among the first places captured by militants earlier this year. We're going to close out today's program with one of the band's songs, which is part of the second aid effort that we'd like to tell you about. It's a compilation CD called Songs for Desert Refugees. As with tomorrow's concert in New York, proceeds from the CD go to groups helping those displaced by the violence in northern Mali. You can learn more about the CD and tomorrow's benefit concert for northern Mali at theworld.org. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Hope you have a great weekend.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International